For an environmentally friendly way to travel and to get some good exercise, how about pedaling a bicycle through a landscape of tulip fields, canals, and black and white cows in the Netherlands? Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll travel on two wheels to a pair of very different destinations. We'll start by taking a fresh look at the Netherlands, where the typically sensible and efficient Dutch approach to a well-ordered society makes a bicycle a routine and easy part of getting around town. As Relinka Blooming recommends... I think biking is so much part of our lifestyle, and that would be fun if the weather is good, get a bicycle. And later in the hour, adventure cyclist Willie Weir tells us about a recent bike excursion he and his wife took across Colombia. He'll tell us about this emerging gem of South America and how they've made bicycles and pedestrian-only zones an important way to de-stress big city life. We're getting ready for the spring flower season in the Netherlands, plus an up-close guide across Colombia by bike. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. When you think about the Netherlands and Dutch culture in Holland, you think about clichés, flowers, tulips, windmills, skating, but you also think about a society that's progressive, a society that celebrates tolerance, a society that has an intimate relationship with the sea, and a society that is contributing mightily to the European Union. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, we're going to Holland. We're going to the Netherlands, and I'm joined by Rolinka Blooming, who comes to us from the Netherlands. Rolinka, thanks for joining us. Dag, Rick. Dag. Dag. Good day. Yes. <laughs> Good day. And uh, dank u wel. How do you say, thank you for joining us. How would you say that? Dank u wel voor het luisteren. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. All right. So when we go to the Netherlands, we find a, a very cosmopolitan, highly educated society. I mean, in the Netherlands, people speak the languages, right? I mean, anybody who's educated speaks more than Dutch. Yes. You can't have a very big world if all you do is speak Dutch. I was in Schiphol Airport recently, and the signs were only in English. Mm -hmm. Is it possible because the, the Dutch language is so small and the Dutch people are so well-educated that anybody who's educated, you could say fairly, a, a young educated person speaks English? Yes, of course, but we start... When I was young, it was 12 years, but now the kids start learning German and English when they're eight. Will they ever dispense with Dutch and just speak English? Oh, I hope so not. No, no. We like to still speak our own language, Rick. So, well, this is very interesting <laughs> because you, I go to the, the airport and I, I see just as a practical purpose signs in English. Of course. But the people are passionate about their Dutch language. Of course. That's great. Mm -hmm. The Dutch have a very special relationship with the land because the land is so precious. You've reclaimed most of your land from the sea. Mm-hmm. Now you have global warming and the uh, prospect of the sea rising. How are the Dutch responding to this? I think it's one of the most interesting things about the Netherlands, that millions of people live below sea level and that we don't even worry about it. I, I don't think we, we have to fear for the water from the North Sea, but more from the water from the rivers. With the global warming and the melting of the glaciers, the fact is that the rivers are flooding uh, all the time, so it's it's more the people who live in the countryside very close to the rivers so that you have, worry. So you have dikes holding out the sea, but you also have dikes holding in the rivers oh, as they yeah. make their way through the Netherlands to the sea. Absolutely, yes. Now, if you lived below sea level in New Orleans, mm -hmm. you'd be worried about the rising sea. You mm -hmm. sound quite confident. So the Dutch have this figured out? Of course. Uh, after the big flooding in the 50s, with the water management, the new technologies, with the building of the dams and the dikes... I don't really think that people worry about it. No, no. So you've got it. You're, no. you're confident. They yeah. say they say God made the world, but the Dutch we made Holland. Have you heard that phrase the, before? The Dutch created. Yeah, I think isn't it God created the world, but God did not create the, the Netherlands because the Dutch did that themselves. <laughs> the Dutch That's did it. that. So if there is a fault with the Netherlands, I think it's that it is so well organized. It's so confident. You it's, think it's a fault? Well, I don't know, but I just think it's almost boring that everything works <laughs> perfectly. There's no chaos no. like we find in Italy. No, no, <laughs> no. But we are different people, too. I mean, no, you're right. It's different. Uh, it is better organized, of course. But, it's very yeah. well organized. Yeah. Now, you've got this relationship with the sea, mm -hmm. and you're still a, a maritime power. Rotterdam is one of the biggest ports in the world, I believe. Yes. I mean, it provides a lot of work for, let's say, the not-so-skilled labor. Mm -hmm. It's it's still the biggest port in Europe. 
but not in the world anymore. I think Shanghai and Singapore. Okay, but for Europe, Rotterdam really handles a lot of the cargo traffic. Yes, yes. And historically, the world has come to Europe and Europe has gone to the world through the Netherlands. Through the Netherlands. I mean, the Pilgrim Fathers came from England over to the Netherlands and then to Plymouth Rock. And that brings a little more diversity and a little more tolerance, I think, to your society. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, we're talking 17th century. We're talking 400 years ago, 350 years ago, that it all started with the East Indian Company, with the sea trade. So yes, we are used to have visitors. We're used to people with different cultures, with different opinions, with different religions, and we're used to have them visit us and That is very much in our culture. My friends in the Netherlands tell me a society has to make a choice, tolerate alternative lifestyles or build more prisons. And you've had a lot of different lifestyles in your culture over the years. I Mm -hmm. mean, to have as many sailors coming, you had to have an easygoing sort of social environment to attract these sailors in the old days. Mm -hmm. You grew up in the Netherlands. You've seen lots of change. Now the Netherlands are part of the European Union. Are there things near and dear to you as a a Dutch person that are threatened with modernity, or is it all a plus as Europe becomes integrated? Well, being part of the European Union is something that is not new to us because when we grew up, we were already part of the European Union. I think this is kind of a misunderstanding. Almost people think the European Union is maybe 10, 15, maximum 20 years old, but it was founded more than 50 years ago, and we were one of the founding countries. So I grew up in the Netherlands that was part of a European Union. That's true. Us, us Americans look at it like something that came out of the 1980s or something, but before that you had the Benelux... Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg Union, and then growing more and more integration economically with Germany and France. Is that right? Well, the Benelux already existed before the first negotiations began about the European Union. So the Benelux, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg already had economical cooperation and everything. And then since, what is it, 1957, well, the European Union was founded. So the three Benelux countries plus Germany, plus France, and Italy. Those are the six founding countries of the European Union. It wasn't called European Union then. It was called European Community for Coal and Steel. So it was originally a a coal and steel economic partnership, a trade Mm -hmm. partnership. But the vision was to get Europe more and more closely integrated economically. Something we should not forget is that one of the goals of the European Union is to guarantee peace and to provide stability. So really on the rubble of a bombed-out continent in the late 1940s, Euro visionaries were getting together and saying, we've got to find a way so we don't rip ourselves apart again in another generation. Yeah. Do you think they've succeeded now? I mean, there's a lot of problems with Mm. the European Union, but the fundamental accomplishment of the European Union has been to integrate the economies so we will not see a World War III in Europe. Yeah. And it's 60 years later now, and there was no war in Europe. Isn't that exciting? It's good, yes. Oh, that's good. Europeans, uh, you've got the same kind of economic problems that we have, but I think that is something to celebrate, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Rolinka Blooming, and we're talking about the Netherlands. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. Our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. Greg from Tarpon Springs, Florida, emailed us, and he writes, Hello, my partner and I are taking a trip to Amsterdam this spring. What's the quirkiest, most offbeat museum in Amsterdam? Oh, I love that question. Rolinka, what's your choice for the quirky offbeat museum in a city that must be the capital of quirky offbeat museums? A couple of uh, funny museums. There is this bag and purse museum, which I don't know if that's uh, what Craig wants to see. I went to that museum. Have you been there? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Somebody with a passion for handbags that goes, you know, handbags go back to before they had pockets. I didn't know that. Yeah. If you don't have a pocket, you need a handbag. Mm-hmm. And it comes right up to all of the Art Deco bags and then the, the very trendy bags today. So that's in a big mansion right on the canal near the um, the Hoytville. What's the big? Yeah, at the Heeren, Heerengracht, at the Gentleman's Canal. On the Gentleman's mm-hmm. Canal. What's another quirky museum? Um, maybe the Cat Museum. A cat that, museum in that Amsterdam? That houseboat that houses cats. It's not really a museum. It's this Putin boat. Okay. And there's also the houseboat museum where you can see people living in a houseboat. The houseboat museum, Tattoo yes. museum. Mm-hmm. Pipe museum. The pipe museum. Marijuana museum. The Bible museum. Sex museum. The houseboat museum. Sex museum. The 
There's two, sex, there's two sex museums. I'm not fixated on There's two different sex museums. And only Amsterdam can support two because they've got all this history of prostitution in that town. Good. Can I add one other one? You may. Maybe maybe this is something he likes. It's called the Miniature Museum. Yeah. And it is a museum for modern art, but miniature. So it has 1,700 works of art from different artists who are from different countries, and they display it. It's the, it's also the smallest museum in the world. I think it has um, in feet, it's 150 square feet. Wow. And it is artwork. So it's paintings, etchings, statues from all kind of artists in this little museum. When I go to Amsterdam, I stay for four or five days. I have a bicycle parked mm. in front of my hotel. I hop on that bike, and I can get to all of these museums within about 10 minutes. I absolutely love my time in Amsterdam because there's so much fun culture, quirky. Oh, the most quirky museum I can think of is called Electric Ladyland, run yes. by a freaky guy in the yes. middle of the Jordan neighborhood who just loves phosphorescence and fluorescent art. It's yes. very close to the Anne Frank house. Right. It's a few blocks from Anne Frank's house. Yes. I was talking to him, and his favorite part of the United States is New Jersey. I've never met anybody wild about New Jersey, but that's where you got the best phosphorescence in the United States, apparently. So there's plenty of quirky museums to enjoy on your next trip to Amsterdam. Rolinka, your last name is Flowers, right? Rolinka Blooming. Mm -hmm. And when uh, you're a tour guide, you get all these Americans coming in, and all they want to do in the Netherlands is probably see windmills, wooden shoes, tulips, go skating, uh, pole vaulting over the canals. Okay, these are part of your culture. How do you explain the validity of those cliches, and then what are the frustrations for you when tourists come and, and you find them fixated on, on silly uh, cultural cliches? Oh, well, it depends how you look at it. I mean, for me, being a guide working in tourism, it's, it's, it's okay. It's your job. Okay, it's wooden my job. shoes. Yeah. I'm happy they're coming. Um, the flowers are indeed very pretty. But for the rest of the local people, uh, I mean, we all like the flowers, but we just live our life. It's not, uh, I mean, we're not wearing our wooden shoes anymore. We're not, we're not looking at windmills like they are from a, from a picture book. I mean, it's, it's just our, our life and Two we are a modern things. country. The now. Dutch love to have flowers in their homes. Yes. I find when I go to a cheap hotel in the Netherlands, I like to buy a bouquet of flowers yes. in the market, bring it to my room, and it cheers up that room beautifully. What do we always say? Um, a house is not a home without flowers. So we always have flowers in our house, like cut flowers, but we have like plants in the houses. You step out into the street any morning, you'll find people with flowers on the on the little basket on their bicycle heading home to bring flowers to their home. And don't forget our gardens. That's right. Not a lot of land, but and, lovingly tended land. Yeah. And everybody has their garden. And if it's not right in the town, you have a little patch outside of town. Right. You'll see them if you go by train, if you travel by train, which is actually perfect uh, yeah. in the Netherlands. Uh, and you look outside just by leaving the big cities, you'll see these little gardens it's like going to their cabin or something. They have mm -hmm. a little tiny hut on there to yeah. put their lounge chair and yeah. their tools, mm -hmm. and they'll go out there and tend to their garden. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com as we update our portfolio on the Netherlands. And later, we'll hear about cycling across Colombia in South America. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Dutch culture, the Netherlands, Amsterdam. I'm joined by Rolinka Blooming from the Netherlands. Katie's on the phone in Boston, Massachusetts. What are you thinking about Amsterdam or the Netherlands? Um, I love Amsterdam. I think it's a beautiful city. It's kind of like a mini Venice. I know a lot of people, when they go to the Netherlands, they just kind of go to Amsterdam. They kind of they go to the north and stuff. Not a lot of people see, like, the south of the Netherlands. And what did you like in the south? It was kind of almost like a different culture, almost. Um, I actually, I studied in a little town called Well. When, um, when, when I would, like, meet most people, they're like, oh, where are you studying? We're like, well, they kind of laughed at me because they're like, what are you doing in Well? Because I believe it's, like, literally, like, a population of, like, 2,000 people in the whole entire town. Um, we were actually right in the middle of, like, Venlo and Nijmegen. And what I loved about, like, the south of the Netherlands is that there's something about, like, their culture. They're just so funny. They're goofy. They're kind of, like, opening for everything. They're kind of more, like, family-oriented. So, like, a lot more agriculture and kind of, like, stuff like that, kind of like the old Dutch. 
Katie, let's get Rolenka's take on this. Of course, when we're thinking about the Netherlands, when we say Holland, that's the biggest state in a group of states that make the Netherlands. It would be like calling the Netherlands Holland is like calling the United States Texas, basically. Uh, <laughs> so you don't want to call the Netherlands as a whole by the biggest state. And then there are different regions, even though the Netherlands is a small country. Rolenka, how would you characterize the different um, personalities of the people in the north as opposed to the south, uh, what Katie's mentioning here? Mm-hmm. It's very simple. If you look at the map, you'll see the rivers, and the rivers are dividing the Netherlands in the north and the south. Okay, I see that, yeah. So it also means um, the north of the Netherlands is Protestant, the south of the Netherlands is Catholic. Catholic, And that's probably the answer. (laughs) And Protestants are more, you know, business-like and workaholic, and Catholics more enjoying the moment and have a a festival of life. Is that right? That's it. And where Katie has been... uh, That's the Catholic, more easygoing part. Absolutely, yes. Where people enjoy Now, that's south of the Val and the Maas, is that Mm -hmm. right? And the Rhine. There's the Rhine River... Does it break into two different rivers there, the Val and the Maas, as it goes to the delta at Rotterdam, and south of that would be the Catholic part of the Netherlands? Yes. Katie, you hit it on the nail. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) All right. So you'd propose going to the south where people are more ready to have a good time. Yes. I um, I actually, like, went right around, like, Carnival, which I think, believe, is coming up soon, which is basically, like, their Mardi Gras in a way, but they kind of just party for a week straight, wear Halloween costumes. It's it's insane, but it's a lot of fun. Rolenka, have you experienced that? I've experienced it because I lived in Maastricht, which is absolutely <gasps> in the south. So, yes, that's where we, we celebrated carnival. But I'm a girl from the north, so I'm most of the time I just skipped it and stayed at home. But people really like it. People are crazy about it. So you lived in Maastricht. Yes. Not many tourists go to this part of the Netherlands. This is the little wing of the country that's between Germany and Belgium, way in the south. Mm-hmm. How, how would you characterize Ma- Maastricht? Um, it claims to be the oldest city in the Netherlands, so it has Roman roots. Mm-hmm. It's near Aachen, oh. which was a historic town in Germany. It's just a half-hour drive to Aachen, it looks like. Yes, and to Liège as well in Belgium. Mm-hmm. So you're really surrounded by the other countries. It's a small city. I mean, it only has 120,000 inhabitants. Uh, easygoing atmosphere, enjoying life, sitting on terraces, uh, drinking a little glass of wine. It's It's a different atmosphere, absolutely, than in the north of the Netherlands. You know, so many countries have this north-south division, and Mm -hmm. I guess it's all relative because in Belgium, you've got the Flemish in the north and the Walloons in the south. In Germany, you've got the North Germans, you know, the straightforward ones, and then the more festival Bavarians. In Italy, you got the Lombards, which are the more Germanic types and the big industries in the north, and Mm -hmm. then all the the easygoing, uh, you know, uh, life in the streets and celebration is in the south. Uh, That's an interesting thing to be aware of. Katie, thanks for your call and your insight. No problem. I actually have one question. Yeah. Have you heard of, like, White Asparagus? I was actually part of, like, a group. We helped with, like, the Limburg governor and, like, their whole thing. I was just wondering if, like, how, like, the, the North feels about White Asparagus. Kind of random, but... <laughs> how, how we feel about it? Yeah. No, but that's yeah. what we eat. We, we don't really eat the green asparagus. Mm-hmm. That, that, we, I mean, Europeans stop- are very into white asparagus. When I was a kid, back before I even ever ate a mushroom, you know, and when everything came in a box and was cubed, some European friends sent us a tin of white asparagus, and we thought it was like a mistake. We thought these were deformed, but this is a delicacy in Europe, isn't it? Yes. They were sending us a nice gift, and oh, we we thought course, we yes. thought they forgot the green. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, when the asparagus all over, when the asparagus is in season, you better eat it. It's advertised in all the restaurants. Those are the daily specials. Yeah, the the only reason I ask is, um, like, kind of like in the Limburg region, they only have, like, one growing season. It's April through June. Mm -hmm. And so when that season comes out, they have parades and, like, um, all the stuff just kind of surrounding the white asparagus culture. And so, like, I know that the South is really into it. Like, white asparagus, white asparagus is all about the freshness, the quality. I wasn't sure what the North felt like about that or if it's just, like, another vegetable to eat. Yes, but it's it's okay that, I mean, we cannot grow them in the in the North, so they grow them in the South. The soil is better there, and the country is very small, so they can just mm-hmm. uh, send them over to the North and uh, no, it's <laughs> Katie, thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And the Bye. white asparagus is not random. White asparagus is very important if you're eating smartly in Europe. Earl's on the phone in Dowling Park, Florida. Got a thought or a comment for Rolinka or uh, insight into the, the Dutch travel experience? Well, yeah, I'd like to just explain uh, my good fortune when I first visited the Netherlands. I stayed in a hotel in Delft because it had been recommended by a friend. And 
Little did I know, I went in April, and I think I must have gone because it was a good airfare. I didn't realize I was going right into prime flower viewing season in the Netherlands, and I learned about Kukanoff Gardens, and I just, I was blown away. I could not believe it when I visited that place. You know, Earl, I am not one to travel for a flower show, and I happened to be in the Netherlands in the right season there, April, May, for Kuchenhof, and yeah. it was incredible. Isn't it? Everybody I mean, needs to, if you're within striking distance of Kuchenhof, that's the big central flower garden, uh, uh, and it's just an hour away from Amsterdam. It's, it's near the Schiphol Airport or Olsmeer. Yeah, I've been there three times, and each time is, well, it's just a thrill. The last time... I stayed very late in the afternoon, and that was wonderful because most of the people had left, mm. and I could get some real good uh, photography taken at that time. It's amazing to me that all that work goes into, I guess, about eight weeks that they're actually open in the spring. And you can complement the visit with a trip to Olsmere for the flower market, which is, I believe, the biggest building in Europe, they said, filled with flowers. Is that Olsmere where the flower market is? Flower auction. The flower auction hall, yeah. Rilinka, give us a little insight into Kuchenhof. When is the season, and how can we best enjoy that? Okay, do you first want me to pronounce it well? Please. Kuchenhof. Kuchenhof. No, Kuchen. The Kuchen, <laughs> the Kuchen is a kitchen. <laughs> okay, oh, kitchen, okay. <laughs> so it's like a kitchen's garden, okay. if you translate the name. We're actually celebrating 60 years Kuchenhof this year. So it already started the first exhibition found place in 1949. Okay. And actually what, what's interesting for this year is that we're also celebrating our 400 years relationship, uh, New Amsterdam, New York, with some interesting patterns this year. For example, we've got a flower mosaic of the Statue of Liberty. There's going to be uh, special themes on the United States, uh, special gardens. At um, Kuchenhof. At Kuchenhof this year. Wow. Now, Kuchenhof, you can visit it probably any time, but the flowers are blooming when? Uh, This year, it opens March 19, and then it's eight weeks. So, Kuchenhof closes May 21st. Okay. And talking about the crowds... For example, what you could do nowadays is instead of buying tickets at the ticket office, go online, get tickets there, avoid the waiting lines, uh, and go later in the afternoon. That's actually a very good idea. All right, Earl. Thanks for uh, reminding us how great it is to see Kuchenhof. It is. And if you are fortunate enough to be there at the end of April, I would highly, very highly recommend a visit to Harlem where you can view the floats from the Flower Parade that are on display right in the uh, town of Harlem. Uh, The Netherlands version of the Rose Bowl Parade, that's for sure. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very famous one, the one that ends in Harlem, and then the carts stay there for two days. But we've got more. We've got in total more than 20 of those flower parades. And I think the interesting thing is... In 20 different cities, uh, always in the spring? That's what I just wanted to say. It's not always in the spring. Some Hmm. of the flower parades are in summertime. We even have them in September. Ah. There's a very famous one in the south of the Netherlands, actually in the little village where Vincent van Gogh was born. So you could visit the Vincent van Gogh house. You could attend the flower parade. You can do a bicycle route tracing uh, van Gogh's footsteps. There are more than 20 different flower parades. Earl, you got us thinking about flowers. Thanks Mm. a lot. I just wanted to mention one other thing, because whenever I visit Europe, and I do go a lot, Rick, I always use public transportation, and the train system in the Netherlands is <laughs> just unbelievable to us poor souls that are in this country. My wife and I sometimes would sit at the Delft train station, and you're going to call me weird, but I just want to watch the trains go by, and they're all passengers, and like in about 45 minutes, we'll usually see 20 to 22 trains coming or going through Delft. You know, you can be in a place like Delft or Harlem, and they've got wonderful period cafes in the train stations where you can just have your cup of coffee (laughs) or your beer. That reminds me of another thing, Rick. I was on a train one time that I don't know what the problem was, but we ended up at our station at the end of the line, 17 minutes late. The conductor was so apologetic. He came through the train giving us all chits. 
for a cup of coffee or tea at the railroad station. <laughs> you can memorize the train schedule in a glance because the trains leave at 15, 30, 45, and top of the hour. And, you just oh, know... and, and major trains every hour. <laughs> I love traveling by train in the Netherlands. And then you step outside and you see a four-story tall bicycle garage. So everybody parks their one bike in their town, hop on the train, which leaves every 15 minutes, get into the big city for their work, step across the street, pick up their junker bike they've got chained to a post in the oh, yeah. bike garage, and they're on their way to their uh, their work. And it's just this pedal and ride system, which really makes a lot of sense. Earl, yeah. we're going we're gonna to run and talk to some more people here. So thanks okay. for your call. Happy pedaling and, and happy uh, enjoying the flowers. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Val. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Rolenka Blooming from the Netherlands. We're talking about Dutch culture. 877-333-RICK. That's the phone number. Angela's on the line in Visalia, California. Angela, thanks for your call. Yes. Um, my parents and my husband and I just traveled there. It was just fabulous. My parents were both born and raised there and immigrated after the World War. And what did you enjoy about it? The hospitality of the people was just amazing. Um, of course, it was kind of a pilgrimage for us. We went back to my mother's from the Groningen area, and they moved several times when she was growing up, and we were able to locate those houses, and we even got the tour through one of them. The home that my father was born and raised in was still there, and the people welcomed us. We walked through the entire house and, of course, had coffee time with them. So just really special memories. Now, did your family live through World War II then in the Netherlands? Yes, they did. Did they share their experiences with you? Um, Yes, they did, for the most part. They're both in their 70s now. So, you know, my father, you know, lived more in Friesland. They were a little more protected. They were a little farther away from the border in Germany, out in the country. My mother's family, being in Groningen, is closer to the German border My grandfather was very active in the underground, so their families actually had to go into hiding for two years. My goodness. Separate separate from, you know, my grandfather, of course. So we were able to see some of the homes that took them in and hid them. And we're in California, everything's so far apart that sometimes we were amazed to see that the house that they went to hide in was only a couple of miles in the next town over. And then when they felt that they had been compromised, then they had to move sometimes in the middle of the night. And Wow, that's an amazing story to be yes. able to tell your uh, descendants. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. thanks for sharing. Thank you. Happy travels. Okay. Jillian's on the line in Hopkinton, New Hampshire. Jillian, thanks for your call. Hi. Do you have any thoughts on traveling in the Netherlands? Um, I do. Um, actually, I went last summer and also two years ago with my family. What I most enjoyed was probably seeing in The Hague where my mom used to live when she was in high school. She stayed there for four years, and it was just incredible. One of my favorite parts was probably seeing Klingendale Park. What is Klingendale Park? I don't know that. um, It's in The Hague, and, you know, it seems like your average city park when you start walking in, but when you get into the thick of it, everything is covered with sort of a, a light green moss, and all the trees are very thick, and it just, it's very old and magical and very characteristic of the abundant vegetation in Holland, which I absolutely love. Now, you sound like a, a student. Are you, how old are you, Jillian? Yes, I'm 16 years old. So you had quite an experience as a 16-year-old in the Netherlands. <laughs> yes. Did you meet many kids your age? No, actually I didn't um, because, well, the first time it was with a group of students we were mostly going to museums and things. And the second time was with my family, so I spent most of my time with them. So what was your favorite food when you were with your family there? Um, we had rice toffle once. That's fun. Which I probably did not pronounce correctly. but well, did, As well as I could have. I, my, parents, <laughs> my parents took me there when I was your age, and that was my most memorable meal was this incredible rice toffle. Yeah, it was, it was very, very delicious. Now, you were in The Hague. Did you go to Madura Dam in The Hague? Oh, uh, we did not. Have you heard of that? Uh, no. It's a little miniature Holland when I was a kid, but that was... Uh, uh, Relinka, is Maduradam still uh, an amusement park for children and families? Oh, yes. So it's a popular place. It's a mini Holland. What does it tell about Maduradam? Oh, it's fun. It's yeah. it's just all the historical cities, but also like Schiphol Airport, the port of Rotterdam. Everything's it's in miniature. It's all built in miniature, too. So you got yeah. this miniature country, the Netherlands, and then they've got the miniature children's family park amusement where you can go there and check out. You can look at the whole country right there in front of you 
at The Hague, Den Haag. And then you can also, there's a torture museum in Den Haag, which is I found quite interesting. There's the palace where they have the World Peace Palace there, right? This is the, the home of the World Court. And you've got the resort Scheveningen, where it's just a wonderful resort, which is a suburb of Den Haag. A fascinating place to visit if you want to get outside of Amsterdam. What's the saying? They say the, um, the money is made in Amsterdam and spent in Den Haag. That's the capital, right? Yeah, no, I, th- I think there's three cities involved. Three cities, yeah. So Rotterdam, because of the port and hardworking people, and then Amsterdam and The Hague. So the saying is, the money in the Netherlands is made in Rotterdam. Then they talk about it in The Hague, because these politicians, they talk a lot. And then the money is spent in Amsterdam. That's right. So it's made in Rotterdam. They say the shirts, they come with the sleeves already rolled up. Voila. And then, <laughs> voila. Okay. Hey, Jillian, thanks for sharing your experience as a teenager in the Netherlands. Oh, no problem. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Rolinka Blooming to talk about her home country, the Netherlands. Rolinka, so many Americans, when they go to Holland or the Netherlands, they'll, they'll pretty much go to Amsterdam. What would you advise? Give us one image of the joy you can have in your travel experience in the Netherlands if you just get out of Amsterdam. Take us to one special place to wrap up this interview. If you have a chance to go on a bicycle, I think biking is is so much part of our lifestyle and that that would be fun if the weather is good. Get a bicycle, like get one on the central station in Amsterdam, take the ferry boat to the north of Amsterdam and then take the bike ride, um, go out to Volendam or to Edam, it's all very doable, and you're out in the countryside. It's a completely different. It's very quiet. It's very peaceful. And and to give you an idea of how well organized and compact the Netherlands are, right behind the train station in downtown Amsterdam, ten boats an hour. It's free. In ten minutes, you're across the water, and you mm. you just follow that canal into the polderland, and pretty soon you're surrounded by just a fairy tale Dutch scene. It could be right out of a Rembrandt painting. Yeah. Rolinka Blooming, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Adventure cyclist Willie Weir joins us next for a report on his recent cycling expedition with his wife across Colombia, of all places. We'll find out the surprises he encountered next on Travel with Rick Steves. Baby went to Amsterdam, she put a Hello, my name is Elizabeth Van Hest and I was born in the Netherlands and I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. That means Lotje, a girl, taught liesje, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees, a long lane of linden trees. So that makes Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. <laughs> That's so good. When people dream of all the wonders that South America has to offer, they generally put together the epic trip and fly over Colombia. It's just so dangerous. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And now we're going to meet with somebody who not only traveled through Colombia, he biked through Colombia with his wife. Willie Weir is an adventure biker. He writes for magazines about his exciting travels, generally on two wheels, and Willie joins us today, fresh back from Colombia, with some stories to tell. Willie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. 
How much time did you spend in Colombia? We spent, uh, Kat and I spent a little over two months. Two there. months? Yeah. There's not much tourism in Colombia, is there? There isn't. It's growing very quickly. It is, the, I think, the new hot country for a lot of folks at destination. Really? Yeah. Americans don't go there. Well, yeah, Americans don't travel a lot of places. But, you know, there's, there are travelers and then there are travelers. And if you talk to people who are looking for that next destination, people like to get to someplace before it's discovered. So who's in Colombia? Who do you meet? You meet Europeans, you meet Canadians, you meet Italians, and you, you do meet some Americans, not at all that yeah. many. But you're going to find them in the major cities, and that's where people are traveling. Now, the big industries down there, just over the border, Venezuela, it's mm-hmm. oil money, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And Colombia, does it have oil? Venezuela gets much of its food from Colombia in trade for the oil that Venezuela okay. gets so to Colombia. Okay, so Colombia's got it, its agriculture, it's got... Uh, Cocoa. Yeah. Uh, cacao, cacao, as well as coca. So one being uh, one that's legal and one that's not. So oh, okay. Coffee also? Uh, oh, Colombian coffee. You I got mean, it. Juan so there's, there's all these wonderful right. vices. Not wonderful. I shouldn't yes. say that. All these vices, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and also potentially tourism. So there's a yes. tourist trade. Uh, yes, there that's is. That's just, just developing now, you'd say. When you start to see articles about Colombia in the New York Times magazine and some other places, you know that now people are really starting to discover. And it, it was dangerous to travel there in the past. And, and you still have to be safe and really get information before you're going where you're going. But right now, most people who arrive in Colombia are going to fly into Bogota, the major city, about seven and a half, eight million people. And they're going to spend time in Bogota. And then they're going to get on a bus and they're going to go to Medellin, which, of course, people immediately think of the drug cartel or whatever. And what you have to think of is spring-like weather all year round, 4,000 feet, a beautiful city with a beautiful metro system, amazing parks, amazing art. And then after you're there, then you'll go to this little place called, you know, Cartagena, which just happens to be one of the most beautiful cities in all of South America, if not the world, on the ocean there, a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site city. And just with those three destinations, most people who are going to Colombia are going to hit those three spots, and they're the gems. Okay, so let's say you got a couple of weeks, and you're going to go down to South America, and you're going to go to Colombia. Talk about something to tell your friends. And let's talk about Bogota. Seven million people. That sounds like uh, pretty intense. Yeah, it is a very intense city. Seven million. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely feels like. Because seven when I'm in million. Mexico City, it's right. what twenty million, but you can stay in the Zona Rosas, and mm-hmm. it was called uh-huh. the, the. There's Central a Zona Rosa also in uh, Bogota as well. So you can stay. So. There if you want to give yourself a break and venture into the intensity of uh, millions and millions of people. Oh, sure. I think in any major city in the world, you can find those little pockets of peace and quiet. Green zones. But it is a sprawling city that had a major, major problems as far as transportation. And in the last 10 to 20 years, and really since the uh, early 90s through the late 90s and coming on, they've literally turned that city around. So how has it changed? Well, it used to be one of the most dangerous cities in the world. It used to have such a problem as far as people traveling there in their cars that people parked their cars on the sidewalks so the people could no longer walk on the streets. So it was literally a gridlocked city. At one point, there literally was true gridlock where people drove in and nobody could get out. So they put these little bollards up around town? Well, Enrique Peñalosa, the mayor there, one of the first things he did was put bollards up on all the sidewalks, and he came very, very close to being impeached because of that. The people loved it so much that then they started working on the bicycle network. There are now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of bicycle paths in the city. He also has brought on bus rapid transit, which are buses that act like trains. You buy it like a platform in Europe for a train. A Mercedes bus travels up to the platform. Four doors open up just like a train. You walk on. You don't singly hand your money. And often it's got a dedicated lane. And what it does is it allows a city that doesn't have the billions and billions and quadrants of dollars that it costs to put in a metro system to do that in the buses. All over Europe, I was so frustrated by you couldn't walk down the sidewalk because people are parking their cars everywhere. You know how it's chaotic in a lot of countries. They stick these little posts Mm -hmm. up that define the sidewalk and keep the cars off it. They give pedestrians a comfortable place to walk. Exactly. And it works. It it does work. It works very well. It's a whole different situation. But then you got a situation where there's no place to park your car so fewer cars in town? Or well, and that's part of having the bus rapid transit. You know, when you take away something, you have to give people an alternative. So they got public transit and they got bike lanes. and Bike and, lanes. And this is actually an effective thing. Are people embracing the whole bike culture? To let you know how well, it's called the Bogota Miracle. I mean, literally, here it was a city that was dirty, polluted, unlivable, 
if you talk to most people, even people born and raised in Bogota, and it changed. And really, I think the event that embodies that is a thing that happens every Sunday. And if you're going to go to Bogota, you have to spend Sunday there. It is a thing called ciclovia. Now, ciclovia in Spanish just means bike path. But what it is, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. You need to be there. But imagine a city, 8 million people, every single Sunday from 7 a.m. until 2 p.m., over 75 miles of arterials are closed off by the police and volunteers and open to bicycle, pedestrians, skating, and whatever. I mean, these aren't little side streets. These are the main avenues in the city. And over one and a half million people participate in Ciclovia every Sunday. They have over 40 stages that are set up throughout the city and these huge aerobics classes that are being taught. You know, you see 500, 700 people at a time taking outdoor aerobics. And you have the city, in any city you're in, you feel the hustle, the bustle, the tension that builds. It's a pressure cooker. And every seven days in Bogota, you wake up on Sunday morning and you're <laughs> used to that din of the traffic or whatever. You walk out, you're on a walker, on your bicycle, and you go onto this stream of people who literally are living the joy of having their city back. And the pride that people have in Bogota because of this event is enormous. What Enrique Peñalosa and other mayors and uh, lots of volunteers did was give the city back to the people. And we end up having uh, these events, you know, where people are trying to take back the city forcibly. This was the government saying, look, okay, we are going to give the city back on this one period. And what, you know, delightful day yeah. being Sunday. And it, it, we can plan for it. It's that, a festival. It, it is every single Sunday of the year. Oh, multi-racial, every age. Rollerblades? Oh, everything. <laughs> Just everything. It, it is, wow. I literally, I wept as I bicycled down and as Kat did as well. It was such an emotionally moving experience. It's probably a great equalizer. It lets people of all classes get out and have equal fun. All classes and all ages. I mean, when you live in a big city, you don't let your seven-year-old out on their bicycle. You'd have to take them somewhere. And if you're very poor, you can't take them somewhere. And what this does is he gives everybody that chance to exercise and everybody the chance to get out wow. and to breathe fresher air. It's, it's amazing. Brilliant. When you go to Bogota, be sure you're there on a Sunday right. for Cyclovia. There is one day of the year in Bogota, where it is completely car-free, not just the Avenidas, the entire central downtown area, it's truly a festival to go and But 52 witness. days, 52 Sundays, you got 75 miles of bike lane. Right. Just cars are not there. Wow, mm -hmm. what an exciting thing. Now, you've done Bogota. Let's go to a city famous for its drug cartels. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I'm sure that the people of Medellin, you know, it's Isn't because they live in such a, exactly, they live in such a beautiful, beautiful city. Of course, we arrive by bicycle. It is in a valley. And so you look as the river goes by and it's this large city that is primavera. It is spring and it is spring all year long because it's at 4,000 feet. And the rain, if it comes, is warm, is delightful 12 months out of the year. And, and I didn't believe it, but I talked to enough locals who told me, yes, the weather's like this all the time. And then you arrive in this city, which has beautiful parks. If you're familiar with Botero, Colombia's most famous artist who does the sculptures, people who have seen his work, maybe not know his name, he does all of the images of people that have very bloated bodies. I've seen him. Exactly. Yeah, he's got galleries in Italy. He does. Yeah. And, of course, Medellin is where he is from. So there's a Botero exhibit that was absolutely beautiful. There's one in Bogota These big people well. are smuggling drugs. <laughs> That's it, huh? <laughs> They're stuffed with yeah, drugs. Right. So what an unfortunate thing, Medellin drug cartel. For many, many years, it was a Medellin place. was a horrific place to be. And, so are and, the drug and, lords defeated? Have they fled? Uh, what's the deal? Well, things have just changed. They've, they have spread out into other areas of the country. Some of them were brought to justice, some of them in a rain of, of bullets. By the way, I'm talking with Willie Weir. He's got a website, williweir.com, W-I-L-L-I-E-W-E-I-R.com. And I'm sure people can get more of your tales from your biking mm -hmm. on your website. Um, is there... A colonial kind of charm in these cities, sort of a Spanish feel that oh. you'd hope to find? Tell me Me about that. In Bogota, there are pockets of it. Medellin, you have much more of that feel. And then you get down to Cartagena, 
and the World Heritage Site, and that is just oozing charm. In Medellin, the beautiful thing, too, is they have a wonderful metro system that follows the river, and so it's very easy to get around. And the other thing you have to do if you're in Medellin, you have to go to the end of the metro line. And what they did is the poorer neighborhoods are very, very high, very, very steep roads, very difficult to get buses. So what they did is at the end of the north end of the line, they have metro cable. They have a cable car system. So imagine heading up to a Swiss chalet. Yeah. Well, same thing in Medellin. You get to the end of with the same ticket. You get off the subway and you look up the hill and there are these stations that go up and 80 of these cable cars that are come down that seat about six to eight people per car and they come by about every 20 seconds and Ah. you get on and you head up into these poor neighborhoods. At the top of this is a beautiful, beautiful library. Rem Kuhlhaus, who was the architect for Seattle's public library, it looks a little bit like the design was uh, inspired by that in a very poor neighborhood, but is transitioning because it's very quiet because there aren't the cars, the buses honking, whatever. It's like an eight-person ski lift that's going constantly. Exactly. And it's taking people from the poor suburbs up in the low-rent districts. Right, which I think which will be nice. quickly Eventually coming the high-rent. That's an interesting irony how so yeah. often the poor-rent mm-hmm. areas evolve exactly. into the high-rent areas when you have an aggressive public transit system that brings it into the fold. Sure. And this was so popular that they were just finishing another Metro Cable line on the other end. A couple of practical things, excuse yes. me, Willie, about just traveling in Colombia. What guidebook were you using here? Well, we had the Lonely Planet guidebook. That served uh, you well? You know, uh, okay. I, I have to say that because I'm a bicycle traveler, mm-hmm. uh, guidebooks are uh, pretty good information for just kind of getting a flavor for regions like of the where's country. where's the museum and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Uh, when it comes to places to stay, I, I always ask the locals. So in Columbia, especially outside of Bogota, mm-hmm. you go into a small town and you just say, where can I sleep? And you find sure. a place. How, and, how expensive is it? A fairly inexpensive, especially when you're outside of the cities. You can find a place for anywhere from 5 to $10 uh, a night. So you and your wife would routinely sleep uh, in small towns for $10 a night for a double? Right. You know, 10 to 15 depending on, on where, you know, where you were. What about in a city like Medellin? Well, I would say in Medellin, depending on whether you stay at a backpackers. If you stay in a comfortable hotel. Comfortable hotel, you can go up to $100 easily. So that's a splurge. Uh, $100 is a splurge. But looking around, and, and Rick, you know, as you can always find the deal if you ask the right people, sure. you can find a place for 20 In fact, we had a very nice place in Bogota, which is a, very expensive as well, for about uh, 35 It sounds like about a quarter, 20 or 25% the cost of traveling in Europe. I Yes, I would say. What was the... Food like? Did you have comfortable restaurants? Or are you just uh, kind of little quick eateries? The cities are just full of restaurants to eat in, and the, and the food is is very good. And Colombia, you have to think. Well, you, of course, you think coffee, but you have to think fruit. Think of fruit salads and you know all kinds of fruit juices that you can get. And of course, you're going to find the the mangoes and the papayas, but you also find things called uh, lulu. And you'll find uh, different fruits. Uh, oh, different fruits. Yeah, I love that it. we're not used to seeing nice. in, in our local markets. And you'll find it's become very popular now passion fruit, yeah. uh, which, of course, where we live here, it doesn't really make a fruit. You open it up, and it is it's one of the most bizarre looking fruits I've ever seen, uh, but quite tasty. And hot chocolate is a big deal for breakfast, huh? I love traveling in a country where a big, beefy truck driver every morning has this big cup of hot chocolate. And it is not it is not the hot chocolate you're used to if you're from the United States. I mean, the cacao is ground up, it's put in a pot, it's boiled, and it is pure chocolate. It's not the sweet, sickly sweet stuff with the little artificial marshmallows that we're used to. And you can understand why, whether you're a trucker or anybody, you'd want to have it for your breakfast every morning. I want a hot chocolate. All right. <laughs> hey, take me now from Medellin to Cartagena. Mm-hmm. We've gone from Bogota at 8,000 feet plus in elevation to Medellin at about 4,000 feet. And now you're going to head down to Cartagena, which is at sea level. So you might not want to have that hot chocolate every morning. So that's hot and muggy there. It, it is. The equator. Yes, exactly. By the sea. So downtown, the central part of Cartagena, you are in one of the most beautiful world heritage city sites on the planet. Cobblestone, 
a Spanish architecture t uh, to die for. It, it is one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. What's so pretty about and, it? Just beautiful, oh, the colonial, the, Spanish yeah, style buildings, yes. the it, and, and and so well preserved. And a square that contributes it. to the conviviality kind of aspect. Is there a lot of uh, hangout in the square sort of ambiance? Oh, oh yeah, you'll you'll come into a square there that will have. 300, 400 outside tables set up in the middle of the square and every single one of them full. People drinking coffee, people eating. Uh, yeah, it is, Fruit it is truly a, a delight. Drug yes. lords coming in with their AK-47. <laughs> no, that is, you're not going to see that. You never saw a gun-toting drug lord. We did on some of the back roads um, see what you'd call private military. Many of the, the ranchers and the folks in the coffee plantations there sometimes have their own private militia. Uh, they smiled and waved at us as we cycled by. Colombia, like if you're willing to deal with a little bit of risk, and of course, that's what adventure is about, uh, I can't tell you that Colombia is 100% safe. I can tell you that Colombia is probably 1,000% safer than most people think it is. Uh, it is not the scary place that we've been told by the media for so many years. Would uh, your wife, Kat, go back? Oh, in a heartbeat. And yes. where, where do you think she'd want to take you? Well, I think Medellin and or Cartagena, but the weather is so delightful. You know, living in the Northwest, where we're so used to those months of drizzle, uh, it's a kind of place that you dream about wanting to go back to. And the eternal spring of Medellin. Exactly. Sounds great. Willie Weir at WillieWeir.com. That's W-I-L-L-I-E-W-E-I-R.com. Thanks for joining us, and continued happy and safe travels on your adventurous bicycle. There are lots of places to go. Dame tu Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can find more about today's program and listen again in our audio archives. You can also send us your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. We'd also enjoy reading your original haiku poems about your travels or a short hometown brag about where you live. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of our website. Production and technical help comes from Sarah McCormick, Jonathan Lee, and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.